At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to this another edition of the Drug Science Podcast. And today we have a, a rather special guest, someone who's very famous, but who's recently gone from being a television and radio presenter and producer and celebrity, I suppose you'd call her, to a cannabis activist, or at least someone with an interest in cannabis. Her name is Melanie Sykes, and she's going to tell us all about her journey into the world of cannabis and also, I think, autism. Is that right, Melanie? <laughs> yes, I've been diagnosed with autism at the age of 51. I was diagnosed in November 2021, so not long ago now, and it's been a mind-blowing few months, actually. Some of it difficult, some of it joyful, all of it amazing, because to be autistic, I feel, is it's been an explanation as to all my sensitivities that were unknown to me for so many years. So the realizations that go along with that have been painful because of the things I've endured. Well, you mean reliving them, having to... Well, just going through my life mm. and looking at all of my sensitivities and how they were disregarded, trounced all over. My openness has meant that I've been susceptible to abusive and I've had a private life I mean you talk about my celebrity and obviously that makes me cringe because it would but I've had a private life within that and it's not been easy so I've had to go through and unpick all of that so it's been interesting and I have my youngest is diagnosed with autism he's 18 and he was diagnosed when he was three and my eldest, now we look at him and we, he probably is on the spectrum as well. My father was, and we didn't really know it, but it's so blooming obvious when we look at my father's characteristics. So, yes, it's of no surprise, although it was a surprise at the same time. So unusual and life-changing, shall we say. So your son was diagnosed at three. So you had 15 years yeah. of working with your son. And then it's what? Was there a sudden realisation? You well, no, I mean, obviously how a three-year-old presents autism is very different to how I would have been as a grown woman. And also women present differently. And also there is a whole list, isn't there, of, of behaviours. And I've been masking, they call it masking. And I've used to describe myself as a chameleon all the time. I would morph into whatever situation I would find myself in. And I used to almost congratulate myself for the ability to do that. But actually it was a detriment to me because I'm denying my natural instincts all of the time and that's tiring and I've suffered with depression because of it I mean it's all coming up and out now so I realize all, all sorts of things because I was I drank quite a bit I've been sober for five years now I've been sober for seven years in the past but I thought I was addicted to alcohol but actually it was just 
it was self-medicating. I was self-medicating. I didn't, you know, and so even that realization that I was numbing all of my sense, I'm an extremely sensitive individual. Oh, so I'm fascinated, as I guess most people will be, as to what the realization was. Or was it, or was it someone else? Was it, was it a doctor or something? It was somebody else. It was somebody else. Somebody that I've been introduced to, he's called Harry Thompson. He's autistic and he works in that world. He helps children um, who are autistic access uh, their education. And he, he help, works with parents as well. And I was put in contact with him from somebody from the BBC in the, in the hope that we'd do some kind of documentary about the education system. And he came over to my my flat we got talking and he'd been with me not very long and he said oh I, I really think you're probably ADHD it'd be good to get an assessment and again that made sense to me completely and then he said and while you're at it why don't you get an autism assessment as well and I suddenly thought oh my god he's he's got something here because I'm not oblivious to my nature I'm not oblivious to my behaviors and it suddenly started to make sense even before I'd done one minute of assessment. I knew it was going to be a positive result. Well, let's talk a bit, little bit more about that then. So what pointers would you give to, to other women who you feel you know, might have, like you, been carrying this knowledge inside them but not exploring it or understanding it? Well, what were the pointers? Well, no, I, did. I had no idea I was autistic. I had no idea I was autistic. I thought I was, I, suffer, I thought I was just susceptible to depression. I thought that I had alcohol problems. I thought all sorts of things about myself. I've always been such a massive contradiction because I'm actually extremely shy, but I'm also extremely talkative. And that seemingly doesn't go hand in hand, but one-on-one, -on -one, I'm absolutely fantastic. More than one person, I become very self-conscious and shy there's there's just so many factors that put me on and in the spectrum it's hard to say you know one or two things that might mean that you because what I found as well is since I've been di diagnosed and been talking about it people go oh well I think I must be because I do that but you don't do everything so you're not but I do believe that, you know, there are a lot of people who are neuro neurodivergent. And the thing is with women, and I think one of the reasons why there's been such a, an escalation of late diagnosis in women is because I honestly believe this, that culturally when, when children are small, boys are very much, they're allowed to be themselves. They're allowed to be gregarious. They're allowed to be, so they demonstrate their autism quite obviously. Whereas girls are very much told, you know, don't do that, be quiet. You know, we, we, are, we are, even as adult women, we're told to behave a certain way and anything outside of that is seen a little, I mean, the press, I think, think I'm some kind of loose cannon, some kind of, because I don't necessarily stick to any role or rules that women are supposed to adhere to. So I think that women start masking extremely early and therefore the diagnosis is it just doesn't come and you get very very skilled at pretending that you're okay when you're actually not and ironically and sorry like I say I'm talkative so please don't try to stop no, me no, if no, you want. No. <laughs> it's your cat it's your podcast not mine no it's yours it's yours no 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 but anyway 
yes, ju just to say that, yeah, that uh, it's been extraordinary because I've ended up in front of a camera in for both my careers. And yeah, I'm extremely self-conscious and not very good at public speaking, although like for something like this, it, I'm fine. But I do obviously get nervous before I do anything that is broadcasting. And when you've been doing it for, I don't even know how many years, I think it's 27 now. And, you know, some people just really, really enjoy it. And I endure it because for the greater good, especially now, because I've changed what I'm doing. And as, as you, you said, I'm now involved with MedCan support and then involved in prescription cannabis and, and the pursuit of that. So the diagnosis helped you make sense of things. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? I mean, you've obviously touched on the drinking and that was, that was about drinking because you were anxious or depressed? Yes. Well, it was, I used to say I used to drink to commiserate and drink to celebrate. I guess I was numbing my senses. So people, when you're famous as well, people look at you even more than they do if you're not, right? But even when I was younger, before I was famous, I was a model. And so, you know, I was a beautiful young woman. So people would look at me and talk to me then as well. So all my life, I've been encroached upon by strangers and it's been horrendous. <laughs> and then when you become famous, you also have to be extremely polite. And I was brought up to be polite anyway, but you, you almost have to, well, I felt like I had to be really lovely to people but also I use I give too much of myself people ask me personal questions in the middle of shops and I've always felt like I've got to make them these people feel comfortable well I'm just starting to realize I don't need to make anybody feel comfortable apart from myself because I don't owe anybody anything I'm just having a life with sensitivities that I have to take care of or else I have burnout or else I, I feel I mean, I can't tell you when I used to do interviews with magazines and things like that, I would feel like I'd given away chunks of my body and I couldn't shake the feeling for days and days. You know, that's not, I don't know anybody in my industry and I know many people in the industry, but they just don't feel the way that I feel about it. But one has to pay the rent, right? Well, that is also true. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to do it. But as I've gotten older and before the, before the diagnosis, I realized that I wasn't right for it anyway, that I was outgrowing it very, very quickly and that it didn't have the substance that I possess. And I think that in the last two, three years, I've really got to know myself, as a lot of people have during this COVID, the COVID years, where we, we had to stop and the power of the pause reveals a great deal of insight into one's nature and well that certainly happened with me and I, and I know it happened for a lot of people. Oh so the, this insight is a consequence of Covid is it? I would say it was definitely I think aging does it. Mm -hmm. I think wanting to not prostitute oneself to not go against your grain I think as you get older you, you, you're more resistant about doing that. And it doesn't mean, and, and again, this is another thing, it's not even a financial security that has okay. created this 
sort of attitude. It it isn't. In fact, it, it's detrimental to my financial life when I'm not doing the thing that yeah, yeah. that creates that. But I, I have to live an authentic life. I've always been an extremely natural person. I don't need to be on television in, in order to feel like I exist. I exist re- without it. I'll exist after and before it. I am a human being of this world. And I don't need the industry to make me feel good. So I've done it to pay the rent. I've been very successful at it because I consider myself to be people like me. Uh, I don't talk crap and I'm a good communicator. So yeah, but I've just outgrown it all. But I definitely think COVID fast-tracked all of this. I'm turning 50. (laughs) How old are you, Dave? I'm 70, so I... Uh, I completely understand, yes. But when you get to my age, you know. Well, it's a whole, I'm sure there's a whole other level of relief and release that goes on, or not. Well, the biggest relief comes of paying off your mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) I'm yet to get one of those. Oh, right, well. Honestly, (laughs) I don't even have one. I had one years ago and I decided I'm not putting my money into bricks and mortar. I'm going to travel, you know. And so I did quite a bit of traveling, um, but now I really need to sort my life out. So I'm desperately trying to get myself something. I suspect you have friends in many countries that will put you up if you need a roof over your head. Yeah, I've always got somebody who'll put me up. There's always a sofa available to me, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm interested in what you say about COVID because certainly it, people had to think differently and then that's not something you're forced to do very often. So, you know, no. when you do it, you have different solutions or different insights. Yeah. Well, well, I, I suddenly realised how much I preferred my life indoors, the solitude of it. Obviously, I had my boys and everything, but I am a homebody. I am, I mean, to be honest, I'm going through a bit of a period at the moment where I'm trying to resurrect myself back into normal life. And it's a slow burn, really, because I've got this homing pigeons going on at the moment. Like I literally, I get to a certain distance away from home and I want to come back. So that I need to tackle. But I realized, why have I been running around like a crazy person? Why have I been tap dancing for money? Why have I been doing all these things that feel so alien to me? So I started the process, definitely. And also you start to look at your friends and how they've behaved and the ones that were adhering to the rules and the ones that weren't. And it was just like, oh, my God. And also you sat on your sofa every day looking at one-sided view from the news and nothing I couldn't understand why how I felt wasn't being represented as well. So there was all that. Hang on a minute. We're fed a line. We're fed a line from the day we're born. And if we don't challenge it, if we don't look at the other side of it, we are, we're just not asleep, but definitely under the influence, aren't we? I think you're right in terms of people with autism, the hiding of it. You know, the fact that, you know, it's only relatively recently that it's been a kind of acceptable thing to talk about. Previously, it was a sign of mental disability or illness. Yeah, but but neurodivergent people think outside the box. I mean, and, and that's fantastic and should be positively encouraged. And it is when it makes loads of money. I mean, Harry, who I told you about recently, he describes, what does he call them? Establishment autists. And it's people like Bill Gates who create so much money Mm. that they're accepted. But there's, there's a whole host of people that think differently. And I'm very, yeah, I've always thought differently to other people. I think, why aren't why isn't anybody saying anything about that? Why is, mm, mm. you know, anyway, I think that neurodivergent 
people need to be encouraged and heard. Yes, I mean, I think historically you're right. I mean, some of the most successful and remarkable people have definitely had, had autistic traits. I mean, you know, look at some of the great chess players in the world. I mean, it's a skill that, you know, you need a different kind of brain to be that good at doing it. Well, absolutely. And there's people with, with specific skills, yeah, and we need to see them and understand them. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment. I think it's called The Artist's Way. I don't know if you've heard about it. Oh, it's a book that basically suggests that we're all creative people, but we're not, we're not encouraged to be creative. Creativity seems to be something that is fanciful. But actually, as humans, we just by nature are creative and we never and we should encourage that. So when I was at school, I wish somebody would seen how good I was at art or seen how good I was with words and just encouraged that element of me. Instead, I ended up doing things that, you know, I mean, you know, I ended up modeling for eight years. So it was neither here nor there. But I'm actually a creative and I'm only just owning that at the moment or even discovering that side of myself. And it's very exciting. Very exciting times, really. Yeah, I mean, giving people the opportunity to find out what they really are. That's a lot of education is about making people what we want them to be rather than what they could be. (laughs) Yes, which is crazy, really, because if everybody was living on the planet doing what it is they were born to do, I think it would be a much happier environment. And I think the world would be a better place. So I'm interested to know, was your father still alive? Yes, he's still alive, when you, yeah. When you went back and said, Dad, <laughs> I can't really tell Well, you. I haven't actually spoken to him about I haven't actually spoken to my dad Have about it. I've spoken to my, no, I've spoken to my mom and my sisters and everything, but not actually had a conversation with, my dad's not good on the phone. So, and I haven't been, I've not been up north for a while because of the COVID situation. Everybody's been, you know, come, come down to see me recently, but I haven't been up there. But, you know, it's, it's so obvious that my, my dad is, his specialist interests really are politics and brass bands. I mean, he's, yeah, he's a conductor, a composer, a player. My, he taught all of us to read music. Socially, he's not great, but if you get him on the topic of either of the things that I've just described to you, we can just endlessly talk about them. Yeah, so it was obvious, but it just wasn't so. It wasn't identified then, and so I'm proud of my dad because I think he's done extremely well with his life, considering he had no idea that he was autistic. Just say that he, I know he's explored that and talked about it with my with my mum now, and it's sort of obvious to him that that's what the deal is. I often wonder whether Mozart was autistic. I mean, is it the ability to just remember music, remember every piece of music he, anyone else had written as well as himself? And yeah, I mean, but that's the thing as well. There, it is a little bit of a fallacy that everybody's obviously a genius that's autistic, but it's that the ability to think outside the box. I can't really express it any more than that, really. And but and, and also, I think autistic people tend to say what they mean because I, I a lot of people don't say what they mean, and I find that extraordinary. I've always struggled with that, and because if you if you question somebody who says something and they go, oh, "No, I don't, I don't mean it like that," I'm like, "But that's what you said." Yeah, but I didn't mean it like that. Well, how am I supposed to know what you mean if you aren't saying what you mean? And autistic people do say exactly what they mean. <laughs> so who's you know? So what side? What sort of brain? Is it better to be explicit about what it is you need and what it is you want and what it is you think than to fudge it? What's better? I know what I think is better. Well, you have in your own, in terms of your own uh, 
experience, you've now clearly come to the conclusion that telling people what you really think is a lot less stressful than trying to tell them what you think they want you to think. So, well, I've I've been not, I've been very. I mean, I have a magazine called Frank. You know, the word Frank comes up for a reason. And for years, I I've always been very straight talking. And I've thought it was a cultural thing. Maybe, you know, Northerners are, are like that. But that's not true. You know, some Northerners aren't frank and straightforward, you know, straight talkers. I, but for years, I thought that was very much just part of, like, my cultural background. But but it is obviously my autism. And I'm not afraid to tell the truth about things because the alternative is a lie. And, a, and, it's, and it doesn't create the right opportunities for you. And your world isn't isn't the world that you want to be in if you continually tell lies. No, and I think that is isn't that one of the challenges with autism? Is it trying to learn the rules of what are quite complicated rules of social engagement? Yeah, and that's the point. Is I don't want to learn any rules because who put those rules in place? Those rules are not my rules. I am a human being with my own right to say and do and behave how I want, as long as it's, you know, I'm not rude or. There shouldn't be a conformity. I don't see why I have to conform to somebody else's idea of what is acceptable when I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, so that's what school is for autistic kids, though. It's a, you will fit into this box, and if you do not, you're, you know, you know you're, you're sort of subnormal. Well, it's just bollocks. Sorry, excuse my French, but it is, and there's no other word for it. I can completely concur with you. As you know, I'm, you know, I'm very interested in, I think on the shelf behind me, there's a book about drink. I'm interested in, you know, the fact that so many people turn to alcohol to deal with anxiety and stress and depression. And you did, but you were able twice now, you've managed to stop. Yeah, because it wasn't an addiction. It's really interesting because I thought it was, but I was able to stop for a really long time. The first time I stopped, it was because I was younger and I was, you know, getting married and I was having babies and that just does is not conducive to a healthy environment for all of that. And so I stopped. But I also stopped because, you know, I, I was the person I was marrying was, you know, was really supportive of that. And then I fell back into it again. And then just more recently, like, like I say, it's five years in May and I've got no interest in it. I will never, ever drink again. And it's not, it's not something I've got to worry about because I'm not, it's, it, wasn't my, it wasn't an addiction. It was interesting because I've been sober a year when I went to a therapist. I went to, because yeah. I've been in and out of therapy since I was, I think the first time I went, I might have been about 25 and just trying to work out what the hell was wrong with me. <laughs> Oh, I see. You had a sense. <laughs> yeah, because I was, you know, I just didn't really, I wasn't comfortable. I didn't feel like I fitted in. I was always struggling and with various things. Anyway, yes, yeah, so I went to see, I went to see a, an addiction specialist and just to make sure that that was my problem. But it wasn't, I think the specialist was very, was expecting me to go there because I wanted to find some tools how to stay sober. But I was, that I didn't need any help with that. I wanted help with the unraveling of my personality once I'd stopped. Yes. Because um, anybody that gets sober knows the layers come off and it takes time. And it's still got ongoing with me. And this autism diagnosis, again, has just thrown me massively into more layers and layers. And it's been 
unbelievable and brilliant. But yes, people self-medicate with alcohol because it's available. It's it's so easily available. I mean, actually, during the first year of COVID, one of the first things Boris Johnson said was, you know, get your first vaccine and get yourselves down to the pub. I mean, it pissed me off because alcohol is so bad for the immune system and it didn't make any sense to me to advocate the vaccine to go and get leathered. I was furious. Yes, well, we, of course, know that... uh... Maybe he was drunk when he said that. Who knows? Who could possibly who could possibly know? Yeah, it's not him anymore. Anyway. I mean, oh, that's hilarious. I just but I mean just just a couple more things to say just about your autism before we go on to the cannabis. Um so I mean in hindsight, do you think if you had worked it out when you were you know in your late teens or even earlier, like your son, I mean, do you think your career would have taken a different tack? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I probably would have done other things. And I don't regret my life. I mean, modelling was fantastic. People were amazing. I travelled the world. I had a lovely time. When I got into TV, that, that things got hard because the actual being on television and, and some of the mechanics of being on television were against my personality. Well, getting up early in the morning. No, I'm an early bird. Oh, no, it was fine. never that. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, God, this morning it was quarter to six. I, I just wake up and I'm ready for the world. So it wasn't that. No, it was just, <laughs> it was just certain things about it. And also just, like I said, being on camera, whereas I'd gotten used to being a model. I've been a model for eight years. Also, like we talked about before, there's no, there was no fame involved with my modeling. I was just, a, I just worked a lot. The fame came after I did a commercial that became really well known. And after the commercial, I started to get recognized and I found it really difficult then. And I was only 27 or 26 when that happened. I was thinking if you'd had the insight you have now. Yeah, I probably would have done other things. I would have done other things. I would have been, I probably explored my creative side so much earlier than I have done. I mean, I started Frank magazine about three years ago and it used to be a bi-monthly online magazine and it was a 200 page online magazine that you could like flick through on screen. And I was across the even down to font size. I, I wrote all the interviews. I edited all the interviews. I picked all the imagery. I literally didn't realize that I could look at pages and pages of magazine and know instinctively what needed changing to make them perfect. And I realized what a perfectionist I was in terms of that as well. So I'm extremely visual, but I also, you know, I love photography. When I draw, my proportions are just amazing really for somebody that's not ever no haven't been taught whereas I can I can copy draw pretty much anything and the proportions are right so I'm actually just uh, going to start an an art course because I need to untap it's definitely an untapped resource with me and I need to go and go and do it so yeah I probably would have just been in more creative zone earlier on that's probably what it would what would have happened and also I love to interview people so I probably would have been doing that as I do now for the magazine I mean that's what I do and your magazine is targeted at ecology well, I mean trying to get a sort of balance between personal health and social health Yes. I mean, it started out it started out as for women over 40. And then I changed that because I just thought all women's lives are important to me. I'm just it's going to be across the board. I also just my life 
I care, you know, I, I've been reading and watching all of the global warming, the, all that's going on and, and decided to just reduce my life to the bare minimum, which I've done. And there's still work to be done on that. But my father used to stand in the local elections for the Green Party. He's been banging on about green issues since the 70s. And obviously, I'm a 70s child. And I, you know, my, my dad was a great source of inspiration. You know, I used to go canvassing with him when I was little. Yeah, and he used to have stalls. And there weren't many greens in those days. <laughs> no, I mean, our, I always say this, our, our pamphlets were made from recycled paper and it, the technology wasn't so good back then, so if it rained, which it did often <laughs> in Manchester, they would disintegrate. <laughs> but even at the local carnival, he would have wallpaper table out, giving out leaflets, banging on about, and it was all aerosols then, wasn't it? It was all the ozone lane, it was aerosols, and they managed to, to turn that around. I mean, I've just been watching the news now about what's going on in Ukraine and, and all about the energy that we, you know, that we're not going to have access to and how we're going to have to start looking at renewable sources. And apparently in the last six days, they've made more, you know, they've had gained more traction about changing to cleaner fuels so that we don't have to go to Russia. And it's taken a war for us to go that, not global warming, but a war for us to wake up that we need an alternative regardless of what is going on over there. So there are glimmers of hope in a way in this crazy situation that's happening right now. So it's to encourage it's to encourage people to try a more alternative greener route and the ways in which we can do it. And it doesn't matter how small, just make some changes. Is that why you're online? Because you don't have to produce paper. I mean, in terms of your making yeah, well, it's not the reason necessarily, but of course it's better for the environment that it is. It's just online because it's online. I, I don't really know why that. And also it's, you know, yeah, it is obviously a greener solution. I've not seen your magazine, to be honest. I mean, do you, do you have live shows as well? Or is it just reading? It's just reading. It's just reading. It's interviews. In fact, we interviewed Dr. Callie Seaman, actually, for the magazine. But we talk about women doing amazing things in the world. You know, we've talked to surgeons and eco-warriors. And so it's mostly women, but not all women. You know, we've been talking to this guy recently about hemp bricks and how the future is hemp. And, you know... We... Well, that's a good place to be, yes, because we can talk about that. Go on, t tell me more about hemp. Tell people about hemp bricks, because I've been fascinated. No, no, because we haven't published the article yet. We haven't published the article. It's not been, it's not finished yet. So I've got to read it. But I'll tell you, I'll tell people about Hembrick, shall I? Yeah, please do, because it is amazing, isn't it? So a few years ago, I spent 10 days in the witness box in the Supreme Court in South Africa, arguing that they should allow medical cannabis. And one of the other people giving evidence was a, a South African builder who wanted to make hempcrete, hemp bricks, because they have this phenomenal ability to keep you warm and cool at the same time. And because of the absurdity of the South African laws on cannabis, which are pretty much the same as the British laws, they couldn't grow hemp. What? They couldn't legally grow hemp in South Africa. So they had to import hemp from China to make their hemp bricks. Um, and they had to get a license. I mean, and you just think the absurdity of the drug laws, which is, you know, a country like South Africa really does need cheap, effective building materials. Yeah. And it, it's crazy. It, it is totally, totally crazy. But it's changing and you're helping change it. So tell me about your interest in cannabis. Well, I hope so. I mean, I don't, I mean, I feel like sometimes I've just, just my, I support them forever far because 
the guys at Medcam are warriors, you know, there's Hannah, Deacon, Matthews and Calais. What happened is, it's, I'll, I'll try and tell you this story very, very... Yeah, tell me the story, because I don't know how you got into Yeah, so so my friend Tamsin Losais has a... She has cannabis oils. They're, they're sort of a beauty oil that do wonders for the skin. And so she's an alchemist, and she's been following Calais semen online and followed on Instagram and she thought I'll contact her so she's a scientist she can have a look at my oils and see actually what it is that's in them that's making them so brilliant and she got talking to Callie and then she said to me watch a documentary it's on Netflix called Weed the People which I'm sure you've seen I have not but carry on you haven't oh my god so this is a documentary based in the States about medical cannabis for cancer patients and the results of the case studies that they did in the documentary were miraculous and brilliant and I I couldn't believe this plant has this power that, that cancer cells literally die in its presence and I was staggered and excited and scratching my head as to why no, nobody knows about this why doesn't anybody know about this and what's going on in this country and then I found out about MedCam and about epilepsy and how it really helps reduce seizures for children in this country and I just thought wow we really should be highlighting this and I would love to do a documentary the British version, if you like, of weed people, but focus on epilepsy. Well, of course, I and drug science would support you wholeheartedly in that. It is outrageous the way the medical establishment ignores the evidence that these parents have, uh, have generated, and we force them to spend thousands of pounds a month to keep their children well. It's just, it's cruel, really. So, yeah, I'm with you. If you get some, you know, if you can get a get a cameraman, I guess you could direct it. Well, I mean, this is the thing and what, you know, it's been an interesting one because obviously I've been in the TV industry, I've seen it from all angles and more more recently I've, I'm seeing it from a production side of things because I've got quite a few ideas that I want to pursue. The problem is with the, the TV world is that once they've done one documentary about one thing, they tick a box Sometimes it'll be, well, we've done that. We won't do that now for about three years. So, for example, even autism, it'd be like, well, we've just done one about autism, so we won't be doing any more on autism, even though there are so many autistic people in the world and we need to be educated about neurodivergent people in the same way that we've, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I've heard that there was a documentary done maybe three years ago. Well, I don't think there was a... There's not been a documentary on the 21 patients that we've pulled together, and, and some of their stories are overwhelming. Well, this is what I mean, but they think that they've they think that they've ticked the box on it. So it is a battle. It is a battle that I will continue to have, though, because I will not give up. Because we have to break down some of the stigma that is around it as well. People don't seem to understand that it's not about getting high. It's not about, you know, people think, oh, how can parents give their children drugs? But we're all freely chucking chemicals down our necks like there's no tomorrow. And it just, it's about changing perception. And changing perception seems to be the hardest thing in the world to do. 
because there's a resistance because of the way the world is structured. You know this. You know this. No, but carry on because I agree with you. It- no, because it nobody because we we know it's all about money. We know we know that we you know it, like I say. It takes me back to the Boris Johnson thing again with the with the the alcohol. It's like you know, be good, get your vaccine, go and get drunk. You know, alcohol kills so many people. The side effects of alcohol, the strain that it has on the NHS, but it makes more money than it loses money, and therefore it's all right. And it's disgusting. I'm not sure, Melanie. That's true. I think I don't think it does make more money, but I think people believe. It. But what is it then? But what is the, what is it about then? If it's not, well, I think it's people like it, and people are prepared to. People take what they are given. Oh, there's a there's a lot of misinformation against starts from childhood. I mean, it's culturally and a culturally accepted intoxicant, isn't it? And it's it pervades every aspect, as we've discovered. It even pervades every aspect of decision making in government. So you know. It's... Well, exactly. I mean, you know, this country people really kind of look down on culture of drinking in the in this country as they should because most you know most Italians I know they blooming drink so that they for the flavor you know not it's it's not about like you know losing control you're quite right in fact yes it's uh, there's something about the northern Europeans where it's about losing control getting drunk this important rather than as you say taste and flavor but actually quite an interesting issue for you in your uh, magazine really because I mean, women in drinking is quite a big health issue at present because younger women in their 20s and 30s, now they're becoming more and more successful, are drinking, I mean, they're not, now they're drinking as much as men, but they're, they're thinner and, they're, and they've got different distribution of alcohol, so they're probably more vulnerable. Yeah, but don't you think that people were drinking equally in the 90s? I mean, oh my God, there was a whole culture, well, I mean, the press named women ladettes who were drinking pints, for example. They're women more sophisticated now, and they're drinking more wine and cocktails. Well, I know. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing because I mean I'm not laughing because I don't know why I'm laughing. I think it's more, they're just more ladettes now because that women are better off because women are more empowered and women. No, well, I mean, ladette is such a stupid word. Anyway, women like alcohol, men like alcohol. We're human beings. We're equal in that way. We like, you know, people like to lose control and forget about their problems or whatever it is they're they're seeking to do they're doing it en masse and it's positively encouraged and as you say going back to the government like the parties and stuff it just gives people carte blanche to behave the same that's right and it's frightening and that's why we need to approach it you know from from a different angle because they can't the the role models are pretty poor so we need to educate but i am i have to say dave i was actually i'm actually quite curious about what you said you don't think they make money more money from the selling of alcohol than the losses that they take no no. treating alcoholic the diseases that come from overuse of yeah it's a complex equation obviously because there's a cost of the health service about three and a half billion the cost of policing of drunkenness is about six and a half billion Uh, the lost but the opportunity costs, those are the huge bills. So if you take the lost productivity from days off work through drinking related illnesses and hangovers, that comes to a something like twenty billion. Oh my god, I hadn't even thought of those. And the total cost is about thirty the loss is about thirty billion and the the income is about twenty billion from tax. Yeah. Well, do well. It just leads me to believe that the the leaders would prefer their people to be poorly. 
They don't want us to be healthy. They want us to be poorly and they want us to be able to be controlled. There is that. I mean, I now when I often give a talk when I talk about the works of Aldous Huxley and you know, his famous book, Brave New World, the workers were controlled by something called Soma. And I say, I think that's now alcohol. <laughs> what was Soma? What was it? Well, there was never a chemical definition, but it was a Soma. The name Soma comes from the from the Hindu drug, which is called Soma, which uh, we, we don't know what it is. Okay. We think it was a cocktail probably of a bit of cannabis, a bit of ephedra, a bit of a stimulant, maybe some magic mushroom juice. So it was a kind of powerful cocktail, that, which is why, of course, it was very much encouraged people to see things differently, which is why so many of the Hindu gods have got more arms than they should have. <laughs> <laughs> I think they hallucinated a bit under the influence of it. Oh, my goodness me. But uh, yes, it's lost in the mists of time. But we still have, there's actually some quite nice lines from the, uh, from the Indian writings about how cannabis was seen as an extremely powerful vision and uh, spirit creating plant of course you know there are religious sects in india that use it on a daily basis though yeah yeah i mean it's a it's a natural natural medicine so you may not know this and i'm gonna we're gonna have to stop fairly soon so send me your address and i'll send you a copy of my new book on cannabis because you won't find that useful to have please do yes i will send you that thank you one of the remarkable things i learned when i was writing this book was that the there was a, an Irish doctor called O'Shaughnessy who worked in India for the British government or, or the, the, you know, the East India Company. And he noticed in India how the Indian doctors were using cannabis to treat spasms in children, epilepsy in children. Right, right. And he brought it back, he brought it back to England in about the 1850s you know, as a treatment for epilepsy. So it's not as if it's a new No, it's not it's a new thing. thing. No. Absolutely. But yes. we, kind of medical profession, has kind of tried to deny it, which I find just actually quite distasteful and, and pointless, really. But, yeah, yeah, it, it oh. really is. How, how much of a fight is it, do you think? I mean, do you think we're ever going to be able to... I mean, I know everybody's... All the talking and all the podcasts and all the books and all the world, what will make the change, do you think? When? How? Yeah, well, this it'll be people like you who are not, you know, who are, are coming to it independent of medicine, who are saying, look... From our perspective, why don't we give it a go? You empower your readership to challenge the doctors to see whether medical cannabis could be useful for them. And it could, because it's effective against such a wide range of disorders, which I'll show you, you'll see in the book. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to reading it. But that's what they say with the interview with Callie, that she says in the interview that they'll offer sort of brain surgery before they'll offer the cannabis. It just doesn't make any sense. When there's evidence after evidence to suggest that it relieves so much pain for these little children, it's heartbreaking. And it's criminal, really. It is. It's a sad critique of the, the medical profession not being flexible. And I think partly it's because the discovery has been made by patients, patients and parents rather than by doctors. And doctors are quite paternalistic. They like to tell patients that they know best and when the patient comes up with a solution they're often the doctors often feel threatened so we're doing a lot of education of doctors as well now to see if we can kind of break break their fear and or undermine their fear reassure them that actually medical cannabis makes a lot of sense yeah we've got to keep the fight going haven't we well i'm glad to know it's great you're on side and stay in touch if you want to make that film we'll be ready to to really help you 
yeah well honestly i really really want to make it happen so so i will be in touch as they say fantastic well it's been lovely talking to you melanie and you thank you keep up the good work and maybe we'll meet at some future date okay yes it would be lovely thank you so much dave good to see you take care thank you